everyone. Welcome back to the Story Matters podcast, where story matters. So there's a lot that I want to get into today. This is going to be my Mistborn review based on the book by Brandon Sanderson. But before I get into that, I do have a little bit of ranting to do, so you will excuse me. But I did get a two-star review recently on Goodreads for my first book, Ages of Anya. But this really doesn't bother me very much. I think I've learned over the years that people do have different opinions. And you can look up the most popular book imaginable, and you will see that there are people that hate it. There are people that hate Harry Potter. There are people that hate Lord of the Rings. You know, every reader is different. If you're going to be a writer and you're going to put yourself out there as an artist, you're going to get uh, people kind of attacking you. But the reason that I wanted to bring up this particular review is because he said I probably would have given this a better review if it had an editor. Well, I did have an editor. I actually paid an editor $6,000. And we went through that book for like two years, just kind of meticulously, obsessively going over it and over it and over it. And then he said something kind of interesting. He said that the style has this grading quality that is something that a lot of newer fantasy writers are doing. And again, that was, I found it very perplexing because Ages of Vania is a very archaic style. It's not a newer style. In fact, what inspired me to write my first book were the classics. It was all the old books that I really, really loved because when I got out of college, I read like Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert Howard, mythology stories. I read Homer. I read Shakespeare. Even Tolkien was a little too modern for my tastes. I really kind of learned to appreciate authors that were writing 100 years prior. When I wrote Ages of Enya, it was actually a rewrite of the Dark Age of Enya. And the Dark Age of Enya was very, very old-fashioned. So when I wrote Ages of Enya, I said, I got to modernize my style. And I did that as much as I could. But it was kind of difficult because I hadn't really read a lot of modern authors. And so since releasing Ages of Enya, I spent probably 10 years just doing nothing but reading modern fantasy, reading as much modern fantasy as I could to try to figure out what is it that people like, Harry Potter, or Game of Thrones. Eventually, I got to Mistborn, which is where we are at right now. Given a choice, I probably would only read classics. I prefer the prose. I prefer the flowery language. I prefer sentences that make you stop and go, wow, that's a beautiful sentence. And I've really struggled with this because I've seen a lot of book critics and even agents and publishers will say, good style, proper style is invisible. The writing should just be in the background and you should only be thinking about the story and what's going on in the story. And I just fundamentally do not agree with this. I like beautiful prose. And so if this guy is saying that my style is modern, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because if anything, it's the opposite. It's archaic. And if he was to say, I don't like this because it has an archaic style, I would say, yep, I agree with that. That was intentional. And in case you're not aware, if you go on Goodreads, you can look at all the books that people read. So I looked at all the books he read, 
It was all Witchers, Witcher, 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 Witcher. I think he's read like every single Witcher book. And he gave all of them five stars. Every single Witcher book got five stars. And the only book on there that I saw that I really loved was Kafka. And he gave Kafka, and this was Metamorphosis, which is probably Kafka's greatest work. He gave Kafka three stars. And, and this like blows my mind. I'm like, wait a minute. You're giving The Witcher five stars and you're giving Kafka three stars? I mean, Kafka's a goddamn literary genius. I mean, I would die happy tomorrow if someone was to compare me to Kafka. Uh, I mean, I've even seen a quote where someone said, reading is boring except for Kafka. But again, he's an older author and his style is very different. So I'm like, if this guy really loves The Witcher and I find it really boring, he probably won't like the kind of books that I write. Which is fine. Not everyone needs to like the same thing. Readers who are very well-read and who have read a lot of different kinds of books, they're much more open-minded. So if all you read is The Witcher, you tend to think that all books should be written like The Witcher. I will read an author that's hundreds of years old all the way to an author that just got published last week. I'm just open to style because that's what makes reading exciting to me. There is a successful author on YouTube. I've seen a couple of these YouTubers giving people advice on how to be writers when they themselves are not very successful. Like you can't find their books at the bookstore. But this guy's an exception. I'm not going to mention his name, but I have seen this guy's books selling at Barnes & Noble. So he has a YouTube channel, and it's all about giving advice on how to write fantasy. And he has these very clickbaity titles like the top nine mistakes that beginning fantasy authors make or the top 10 things you don't want to do when creating a world building or whatever. So I decided to watch one of these videos because I'm always open to, to learning as much as I can. But what I found really kind of disappointing, the advice he was giving was so cliche. It was so tropey. If you're going to have a magic system, make sure that the magic system have strict rules. It was just an assumption that if you're writing fantasy, you're going to have a magic system. Another piece of advice would be like, don't have your main villain get defeated too early in the story, right? You want him to stick around for a while so that he is a threat, you know, things like that. It's almost like he wasn't really talking about writing a book. It's like he was talking about how to make a pizza. It's like he was saying, okay, you got to put in this much flour and you're going to put in this much water and this much oil and, you know, bake it for 20 minutes and you're going to have the perfect fantasy novel. Like, that's not how writing should be. Excuse me. But what's great about fiction, especially fantasy, is that it can be about anything. Anything can happen. Why do we need to have magic? Why do we need to have dragons? Why do we need to have a villain? Why do we need to have all these cliches, all these predictable elements. I mean, if you're telling me that your fantasy story is made up of these pieces that are just rearranged puzzle pieces of other people's stories, I don't want to read that. I'm sorry, but I don't want to read another story about a, a character who comes from a small town, who doesn't know they're special, who one day discovers they have magic powers, and then they have to go off on an adventure 
to defeat the evil king wizard who is taking over the land. I don't want to read that because I've already read it. I've read it several times and I'm tired of it. And this is why I'm much more interested in reading books by Neil Gaiman and Lovecraft and Stephen King is a good example where you just, you don't have those predictable plot threads. If there's anything I hate is formulaic storytelling. And this is something I want to get away from. And so when I heard this guy's advice, all it did is make me not want to read his books. So if you want good advice, I think you should read Stephen King's On Writing because he will not tell you what plot threads to use. He will just tell you about the process to create tension and how to build characters. And But if you're going to talk about what kind of magic to use or how to create a, a fictional country or how to invent a fictional language. I don't, I don't need that kind of advice. And that leads me to the book of the day, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. Okay, so I got to be honest with you. I was very hesitant to read Brandon Sanderson He's 48 years old, and I'm 48. And when he was 14 years old, he was in ninth grade, and he read a book called Dragon's Bane, which very much inspired him to become a fantasy author. And when I was in ninth grade, and I was 14, I went to the library, and I read a fantasy book, and that was Dragon's Bane. I read the exact same book. But where Brandon Sanderson, I think, was inspired, I was bored. I thought Dragon's Bane was one of the most boring books I'd ever read. Um, the book is by Barbara Hambly. I mean, I was looking for action, adventure. You know, I wanted scenes where a bunch of heroes get together to kill a dragon. But there was nothing like that in this book. There was just a lot of talking in it. And that same year, I had actually discovered the Viking myths. And I remember asking my professor if I can read the Viking myths in place of a novel. And he said, of course. And then he asked me, how many of those myths did you read? Because they're not really one story. They're just like little stories that are loosely connected about Thor and Odin and all that. And by the way, if you think Marvel Comics Thor is badass, Norse mythology Thor is insane. Norse mythology Thor could mop the floor with Marvel Thor. He is he is insanely powerful, dude. And I loved it. I got so excited reading those books. And I remember when I did my book report, my professor asked me, how many did you read? And I thought that was an odd question. Like, why would he ask me that? Of course, I read all the myths because they were they were fantastic. I loved it. It's almost like, he just assumed that this would be boring to read. But I thought it was great, a lot better than Dragon's Bane. And so my path toward storytelling really diverged from Brandon Sanderson because I was really inspired by these old classic stories. And Brandon Sanderson was very much motivated by more modern fiction. And so that's why I was hesitant because I worried that if I read this Mistborn book, I'm going to find it disappointing and I'm going to think to myself, why in the hell is this guy so damn successful? Brandon Sanderson makes $50 million a year and, you know, more power to him. I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve it, 
Um, I'm just saying that this is why I really hesitated knowing all this of going into Mistborn. And I had it on my shelf, just kind of sitting there for months. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, I started reading it. And immediately, I did have some problems with it. First of all, it really falls into this tropey fantasy cliches. You have this character, this young girl, who is a street urchin, a thief. She doesn't have a lot of friends. There's a group of lower class people called Ska. So, of course, naturally, she's a Ska. And she discovers gradually that she has magical powers. And I'm like, wow. Like, this is like the third book in a row that I've read about a young girl that discovers that she has magical powers. I just finished Poppy War, which was about a girl discovering she has magic powers. And uh, and she, you know, has to learn how to control her new powers. And of course, she discovers that she's very special, even among other people that have these magic powers. The other cliche is that you have another character. His name is Kelsier. And Kelsier is your, you know, charismatic, brash, roguish-like, doesn't quite play by the rules, you know, Han Solo type rebel. Of course, he's the hero and he's also Vin's mentor. Again, we have that mentor trope and he's kind of teaching her how to use her powers. And his goal is to defeat who? Uh, An evil king who is called the Lord Ruler. They just refer to him as the Lord Ruler. I don't even know if this guy even has a name. And the, the Lord Ruler has been around for thousands of years, and he's unkillable, and he rules over this empire called the Final Empire. And they're trying to kill the guy because he has created this oppressive dystopian world where the Ska are kind of like slaves, the lower classes are working like slaves, And you have this aristocracy, which are kind of lording it over these people that are kind of working beneath the Lord Ruler. You could not ask for a more formulaic, by-the-numbers story. And this is the guy who is the darling of fantasy authors. This is the guy that makes $50 million a year. I expected something a little more original. I, I think originality in fantasy, that's like a chief thing for me you know, write something different. But then I got into the story and I discovered that it was actually very well written and the characters are very likable. Vin is a very likable character. Kelsier is a very likable character, which is a lot more than I can say for a lot of books. And I wanted to read more about them. Now, there's a whole group of other characters, other ska rebels that are kind of working with them. And I really don't remember any of them. Like, I don't really remember all their names, All I can remember is Vin and then Kelsier. And then there was another guy and he's kind of like this Spock robotic butler, C-3PO type character. He's not quite human. He has vast intelligence. He can remember everything he ever hears. And he was interesting as well. So I like that guy. One problem that I had was that there's a lot of expositions where they're really not doing anything because they have this very elaborate plan of what they're going to do to defeat the Lord Ruler. And of course, everyone thinks it's impossible to defeat the Lord Ruler, but, you know, they need to like raise an army and they need to recruit different people, but they have to do it secretly because there's all these uh, people called obligators and then also these inquisitors and they're like these 
monstrous humanoids that have been transformed into being like unkillable. And their job is to go around and, and find uh, rebels and kill them. And so they do a lot of planning. And they're just planning and planning and planning. And, and they're talking about what they're going to do. And we're going to do this. Or we're going to do that. And let's compare notes. And let me talk to this guy. And then they go talk to that guy. And that guy gives them some information. And they go and they talk to some other guy. And it's just like, oh, my God. Like, would you just get on with the damn story? I mean, the book is 650 pages long. And I just wanted a little more action, a little more adventure. Now, that's not to say it's all bad. He does have a very strict rule-driven magic system, which again, that's what everyone tells you nowadays. If you're going to have a magic system, it has to be very driven by rules. And because Brandon Sanderson does it, everyone needs to do this now. Personally, I prefer magic systems that are what I like to call magical. I like magic systems where you're not entirely sure how they work, where there's an air of mystery, but this magic system is really, it, it boils down to like a science and it all has to do with metals. So if you drink a, a vial of, with iron in it, then you can push things out of the way. It's kind of like the force meets X-Men. It's like everyone's basically Magneto and they all have the ability to manipulate metal objects, but they do this by ingesting the metals and then they have a lot of powers very similar to the Force. They can manipulate people's thoughts and minds. They can jump higher. They can slow their fall. It's not an anything goes type of magic system. It's not like Harry Potter where there's like an infinite number of spells. So it is kind of limited as to exactly what they can do, which I think is good. One thing I will agree about magic systems, you definitely don't want a character to just pull out some ridiculous power that you didn't know they had that will solve a problem. I read a, a starred book by Kirkus that was like this. And I was shocked because Kirkus doesn't star a lot of their books. This is a starred Kirkus book. Kirkus approved. And the main character just in every chapter, they had a new magic power. Every time they got into trouble, oh, I'm going to do this blah, blah, blah. They didn't know that they could do and it solves the problem. And I'm like, I just stopped reading right there. I'm like, no. Magic does need to have boundaries. It's one thing for magic to be explainable, and it's another thing for magic not to have boundaries. But I don't think everything needs to be so meticulously explained. Brandon Sanderson, he has his magic system down to a science, which for me kind of detracts from the magicalness of it. Why don't I just have it be technology? Why don't I just have it be like, well, we just have this device in our pockets that allows us to jump and we have this other device that allows us to push, allows us to pull. I mean, it could all just be technology. It doesn't need to be magic. For me, magic is defined by something that is not understood, right? That is what magic is. If it's understood, it's just technology. But that was interesting, at least. I did feel it was a little bit repetitive, though, because every time there was like a battle, like a magic duel, every single thing the character did, he would say, Kelsier drank copper, and then he was able to jump over to that bridge. And then he encountered that guy, and so he ingested some iron, and then he was able to read the guy's thoughts, or whatever it is, and on and on and on. What I most liked about this book is something I didn't expect from a fantasy author, especially a fantasy author that's dealing with such tropey issues. And that was what I like to call the Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice moments. Because what they decide to do is they decide to take Vin, who is this poor street urchin, 
And they teach her how to be a lady. They teach her how to be an aristocratic woman. And they dress her up in fancy clothes, and they send her off to the ball to spy on the aristocrats because they're going to war with the Lord Ruler and the aristocrats. And while she's going to these balls, she meets a guy named Ellen Venture, who is the son of the most powerful aristocrat in the city. This is like the number two guy under the Lord Ruler. And of course, she's being told by the rebels that all aristocrats are evil, right? They're all heartless monsters. And this reminded me a little bit of the French Revolution, where they just decided in France that all aristocrats and all the, the wealthy are evil and that they all need to get their heads cut off. And that's why they built the guillotine and they pretty much just murdered every single aristocrat. And in a lot of instances, this is you know, necessary because the aristocrats are basically using the ska like slaves to the point where what they'll do is they'll have sex with a ska woman and then immediately after they'll murder her, right? The next day, it's like, oh, they rape the girl and then they kill her right after. And they do that because they don't want the girl to have a baby. And then you have like a half breed, a bastard child, which is half ska, half aristocrat. So clearly these aristocrats are really, really bad. But then, spoiler alert, she falls in love with the son of the top aristocrat. And so she really struggles with this because she's like, how can I be in love with an aristocrat and being told that they're all so evil? And so, of course, there's this very interesting romantic exchange between them, a lot of banter back and forth. Uh, this part of the story I thought was really the most interesting. And I got to a point where I didn't even care what was going on with killing the big bad evil guy. I just wanted to see whether or not Vin was going to hook up with her love interest and whether her love interest can actually be redeemed. I'm like, this is an interesting idea right here. So that's uh, something I really, really liked uh, in this book. Okay, so now I have to talk about the end of the book. And this, of course, is going to involve a lot of spoilers. So if you have not read the book yet, and you don't want to know spoilers, uh, I would definitely skip this part of the podcast. So what's weird about this book is that it got really, really good at the end, and then it kind of dropped off a cliff. A couple chapters before the end, I'm thinking, man, this is, this is excellent. This is great. I was thinking it might be a, a three and a half star book. At the same time, I also felt like this really leads to an excellent cliffhanger because the whole book, they're talking about the Lord Ruler, right? The Lord Ruler, the Lord Ruler, the Lord Ruler. I mean, this whole book is about the mystery of the Lord Ruler. You know, can this guy be defeated? He's like the ultimate bad guy. He's the, the ultimate final boss of this, of this world. And yet we never even see this guy. He never appears in a scene. We almost know nothing about him. Like the author just creates this mystique about this villain. And he finally shows up at the very, almost the very end of the book. And you get to see his awesome power, his godlike power. Two guys actually stab him through the chest with their spears. And it doesn't do anything to him. He just pulls the spears out and his wounds just disappear. And what's really shocking is that he approaches 
the main character, one of the main characters, who's Kelsier, who has this incredible battle at the end. Kelsier has this amazing fight with an Inquisitor. And these Inquisitors are like supposed to be nearly unkillable machines, right? They're like the Terminators of this fantasy setting. And he has this epic fight and he manages to kill an Inquisitor. And people see this. They witness this epic showdown between Kelsier and the Inquisitor. And this is great because now Kelsier's legend has been magnified because throughout this whole book, this legend of this heroic Messiah, Jesus-like figure has been spread throughout the city. And this is exactly what Kelsier wants. He wants to create this cult-like following because he knows that the only way that the people are going to rise up against this godlike ruler is if they have their own godlike figure. And so this is just the, the, a perfect way for him to prove himself, and he does, by defeating this Inquisitor. For me, this is kind of when the book climaxes. And then the Lord Ruler comes out, and I'm thinking, okay, now they're going to have another epic fight. I didn't think he was going to beat the Lord Ruler because he could barely kill an Inquisitor. But I thought, okay, this will be interesting, right? Either like Kelsey is going to like run away, or he's going to put up a good fight, and it'll be like, okay, he went down fighting. Instead, what happens is the Lord Ruler just smacks him and he dies. And it's like the most idiotic death uh, of a hero. I, I was a little disappointed by how quickly one of the main protagonists was killed. It was it was almost like an afterthought. Right? It was like, smack, dead. But I still loved the idea that Kelsier had purposely created a martyr situation for himself. He martyred himself for the greater good that he knew that heroic figures die young in, in battle. They inspire people to rebel. And they really had to give the, the author a lot of credit. And because there was maybe like 50 pages left to the book, I thought, okay, okay, we're probably going to have two, three books where we're going to have to deal with this villain because we've just seen the villain once. And I thought, okay, that's cool. Right? I, I typically don't like books that don't have a, a proper ending. But I thought that this book concluded in a meaningful way, right? It wrapped up a lot of loose threads. So it wasn't like Game of Thrones where when you get to the end of the first Game of Thrones book, it doesn't really have any sort of conclusion. It doesn't have any kind of closure. It just rolls into the next book as if nothing happened. And I really think that you could take all the Game of Thrones books and you could end them anywhere you want, and it wouldn't make a difference, right? Whether it ends on this chapter or the next chapter, it just it's all the same. It's all just one giant book. But I didn't feel this way for Mistborn. I felt like, okay, this is a nice little conclusion, right? Kelsier dies, the Ska Rebellion is going, people are pissed, and now it's up to Vin to rise up and to become the next Kelsier, right? What a great setup for, for the next couple books. Well, apparently that's not what the author had in mind. In, a, in an incredibly rushed sort of way, everything is just concluded within 50 pages. And this is a book where the author spends hundreds and hundreds of pages planning and plotting chapters where people just sit around and talk and talk about what they're going to do and and, and how they're going to do this and how they're going to do that. I mean, the whole book is like set up. 
And then the end of the book, they're rushing to the palace. They get caught by some prisoners and get tortured. Then there's a prison break. Then like all these people show up and there's some brief little fights. And then Vin encounters the Lord Ruler. And then she gets to the fight with the Lord Ruler. And then she beats him. And then he dies. The end. And it's like, what? Like, what? You have this huge setup for this bad guy, which we never see, loses in the end, right? This is a guy that has been around for thousands of years. He's immortal. He can't be killed. I'm not saying that she shouldn't have been able to beat him. I'm saying that she should have beaten him in the second book or the third book or a few books down the line. Then even the writing style changed. It seemed like the author was just kind of in a hurry to finish the book. And so the writing quality goes down in those last 50 pages. It almost becomes comic book level writing. It's like, oh, you can't beat me. Oh, yes, I can. And I don't know. It, it seemed like a first draft because I felt like there was better writing earlier in the book. But the last 50 pages, the most important part of the book, it almost feels like maybe when he initially wrote Miss Bourne, he didn't want to touch his his ending. Like I felt like that was his first draft and he really, really loved it and he didn't want to change it. But he did go back and maybe kind of puffed up his earlier chapters to make them more elaborate. And this is something I've experienced as an author as well. I've gone through a book and I've rewritten parts of the story. And what I've noticed is that my quality of writing is better in the rewrites because I've actually learned how to be a better writer during that time. So I wouldn't be surprised if Mistborn, this was like his baby, right? This was his his ages of Anya. He just loved that ending because he maybe felt really inspired when he wrote that ending and he didn't want to change anything. But instead he went back, reworked the earlier chapters that he thought weren't the best. But by then he was a better author. And the other thing that kind of disappointed me the Lord Ruler is defeated in such an idiotic way, right? Because the whole book is about how do we beat this guy? How do we beat this guy? He's been decapitated. He's been crushed. He's been flayed. He's been dismembered. He's been burned alive. And he keeps coming back, right? Like no one can find a way to kill him. And it turns out that the big secret is that he is a terraceman. And terracemen are these this species that they draw their power from things they're wearing, like items they're wearing. And so Vin realizes that he's wearing these bracers on his arms. And she figures out that these bracers are like the source of his power. So if she can remove these bracers from his body, then he's going to lose all of his power, which I thought was kind of dumb. But that's what she does. Like She pulls these bracers off of his body, and then suddenly he becomes really weak. He becomes like an old man, and then he just dies. If people have burned him alive, and they've flayed him, and dismembered him, and had his head cut off, and they did all the stuff to him, his bracers didn't come off? Like, when they cut off his arms and legs? Unless, of course, he was lying about that. Maybe that was a story that he came up with. If he just created the story that even if you cut my head off, I can't die. And then people believe it. And then that kind of solidifies his power. But we see during the story, people trying to stab him and he acts like it's nothing, which only goes to confirm that he has been dismembered. He has been decapitated. And yet no one ever thought to take his bracers off. The other thing that was, that I found kind of disappointing 
is that I thought this villain was really interesting. Each chapter has a little paragraph, which is from the villain's diary. And it's the story of how the villain originally was this great hero that was trying to save the world. And he went up into this mountain to fight this thing called the deepness. We're not really sure what it's, what the deepness is. And supposedly this hero, after saving the world, he was corrupted by the power that he got and he became a villain. And I'm thinking, okay, this is really interesting, right? Like here's a, an interesting plot for a villain. And I really wanted to know more about why this character became evil. Like I was really interested in knowing how this power corrupted him, how over the centuries he felt this need to, to turn evil. And I remember a lot of the main characters when they're reading his story, they're like, I don't understand how such a, a person who seems so good turned into be to being so evil. Like this doesn't make sense. And then it turns out that this big surprise reveal at the end, the guy that this book has been telling us is the Lord Ruler, is not the Lord Ruler. That that it's actually some other guy. It was it was one of the hero's companions. So all this time we're reading this diary thinking, oh, this is the diary of the, of the main bad guy, and we're learning all this interesting stuff about the bad guy, and it turn, turns out, oh, no, that's, that's not the guy at all. It's actually some other guy we barely know. Now the bad guy has no personality. The book sets us up with this really interesting background for this villain, and then, and then we're told right at the end of the story, oh, actually, this really interesting background didn't exist, didn't happen. This is just a no-name villain. This is just a black and white bad guy, a, a two-dimensional bad guy. It would be like finding out that Darth Vader really isn't Luke's father, right? It would be like if right at the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader revealed to Luke, actually, I'm not really your dad. I just made that up, right? I think that'd be really disappointing. And that's how I felt kind of at the end of this. I'm like, oh, really? Well, that's... That kind of sucks. Um, it, it did start off really, really great with Kelsier going down, fighting the Inquisitor, inspiring the, the people to rebel, creating this martyr image for himself. It reminded me a lot of Paul Atreides from the Dune books, who creates this godlike figure for himself so that he can rebel and take over the, the, the planet. But then I just feel like the last 50 pages just shouldn't have been there. I, I think he should have just scrapped that kind of hurried ending and he should have invested in uh, the series. And maybe because when the book was written, maybe the author was young and maybe he didn't know if he would become a famous author and maybe he didn't know that he would have an opportunity to write a series of books. And so he just wanted to end it which is too bad. You know, maybe he didn't have the confidence of knowing that he's going to have a chance to defeat this bad guy. It, it reminded me a lot of Graceling, where the, the same thing happened. Like, they set up this amazingly cool villain, and then he just dies in the most dumb, inane way imaginable. Final thoughts. Is Brandon Sanderson the best fantasy author around? I don't think so. I actually prefer, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, authors who are more imaginative or more creative, 
who do things that are a little bit unexpected outside of the formula that it seems like nowadays, unfortunately, fantasy has become terribly formulaic. And I really, really hate that. And so I think you need to kind of find these outliers, these less, perhaps less popular authors to find something that's genuinely surprising. I think when you've read, when you've read hundreds of books and most of those were fantasy, you tend to look for things that are more unusual. Uh, that's why I really loved, you know, Anthony Doerr, Claude Cuckooland was absolutely brilliant and it blew me away. It's why I like uh, Neil Gaiman. It's why I like Stephen King's The Dark Tower, even though Dark Tower didn't make a lot of sense, but it was not predictable. I had no freaking clue what was going on in The Dark Tower, and that I found that really compelling. And also, The, the Dark Tower was surprisingly creative. There was just a lot of weird things going on that surprised me, like, oh, okay, I didn't you know, think of that. And this is coming from an author who is, isn't really known for fantasy, but... Stephen King surprised me a lot. I didn't really know what was going to go on in those books. So for me, Brandon Sanderson, not the greatest, but at the same time, what he does, he does it really well. He creates just enough tension to make it interesting. And he makes some very likable characters. And he also does a pretty good job of world building. I'll say his world is pretty fleshed out, pretty detailed, pretty believable. The story makes sense. You know, there's nothing in there that that I found a turn off. And this book I thought was pretty good. I give it a three out of four stars. Now, I just recently released a new version of The Feral Girl. This is the third version of The Feral Girl. It's called the Illustrated Edition. This is coming after the Gamer Edition, which came with a role-playing game attached this is also for Kindle, and it includes 25 illustrations, nine of which are brand new illustrations. They aren't safe for work, I'll say that. They, they do have nudity, but it's you know tasteful nudity. If you're interested in that, you can go get the Feral Girl Illustrated Edition from Amazon. And currently, I'm actually working on my fourth book. It's called The Magic of Anya. And I think that this book is really different. It's unlike any other tropey fantasy, I should say. I'm not saying that there's nothing tropey in it because it's kind of impossible to get away from that, but I'm definitely not writing another book with dragons in it or rogue characters or an evil king that needs to be you know, destroyed or a dystopian world or anything like that. But what I'm really leaning on is character. Because I think what readers most love is characters they can relate to and they can identify with. And I see a lot of that in anime. My, both my kids are just in love with anime. It's their favorite form of storytelling. And it makes sense to me because the characters are really likable. They're really interesting. It's not so much about the plot. It's about the characters. And so I'm really trying to work on that a little more, trying to make my characters a little more compelling. My younger daughter, she's 13, she just finished her a book by her favorite author, who is Neil Gaiman. I introduced her to Neil Gaiman. I said, okay, this is a good fantasy author. Uh, and she read Coraline, and she absolutely fell in love with it. It's her favorite book. She really, really loves it. And she's begging me to read it. She said, Dad, please read Coraline. And I, had a, I have a stack of books to read, and I, I wasn't going to read Coraline, but I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to read Coraline and then maybe we can discuss it together on the podcast. And she's really eager to talk about it. So that's going to be my next review. So stay tuned next week where me and Sophia will talk about Coraline. Thanks for listening. I've been the Calamonos.